going to be reading from page 333 in your pew Bibles. We're going to reading, be reading the first chapter of Ruth. So you can join me by opening up your pew Bible or just listen. So reading, starting verse 1. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man and his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of that man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Molan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then only she was left, along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves. Moabite women of the, <coughs> the name of the first was Orpha, and the name of the second was Ruth, and they lived there for about ten years. But both of the sons, Molan and Chilion, also died. Only the woman was left, without her two children and without her husband. Then she arose, along with her daughters-in-law, to return from the field of Moab, because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been, and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them, lifted up their, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They replied to her, No, instead we will return with you to your people. Naomi replied, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there be again sons in my womb, that they would be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters. Go. I am too old for a husband. If, there, if I were to say that I have sons, even if I had a husband tonight, and even more if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters, this is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me, and more so, if even death separates me from you. 
When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So both of them went along until they arrived at Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was excited to, on account of them. The woman of the town asked, Can this be Naomi? She replied to them, "Mm, Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has returned me empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has deemed me guilty? Thus, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her from the territory of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Esther, for reading that passage to us. It's such a great story, and I love Ruth, and we're going to dive in. Um, But can you remember a time in your life when you had to make a risky decision? Maybe you were facing a decision about college or a career change or buying a house, maybe whether to have surgery or not. During COVID, I think all of us feel that every decision holds some risk. (laughs) One of the first fearful decisions I can ever remember making was back about in first grade when I had to take swimming lessons and I wanted to advance to the uh, more advanced uh, swimming group. But in order to do this, I had to dive off of the diving board at the deep end of the pool. Now, this was an outdoor swimming pool. And um, I looked at that tall diving board and I just imagined myself diving off and going headfirst all the way down to the very bottom. Or I was sure that I would inhale a gallon of water and choke. But I decided I must do this because my little sister was a really good swimmer and I was determined to stay ahead of her. (laughs) So I went out to the end of that diving board and I put my arms up by my ears and I bent over and over and over again. I jumped off and I slapped the water with various parts of my body and it hurt. (laughs) But then I would swim over and climb out and decide to do it again. (laughs) And um, my mother still tells stories of sitting on the sidelines and watching me climb out uh, and seeing that diving board dramatically shake with my fear and the cold. Uh, But I didn't want to give up on that. And Finally, for some reason, I closed my eyes and bent over and and fell, hands first, and I dove. And actually, it wasn't really as bad as I thought it was going to be. But I can tell you, I never look forward to doing that again. (laughs) And I don't know if any of you can relate to my trauma of the diving board. Um, But some of you uh, probably don't hold the same fear of heights or or diving that I do. And, And maybe when it comes to taking these sort of risks, you might more relate to my son, Caleb, who has worked up to doing this. (laughs) 
Yeah, he is a risk taker, no doubt. Um, in my proud mama moment, I'll tell you that uh, yesterday he actually won districts for AAA diving. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but that took years of gutsy practice. And if you're like me, you can say, I, I could practice for a lifetime and I would never, never be able to do that. If for some reason God needed the specialty of diving to advance his kingdom on earth, I would be last in line to do that. Lord, you can really shine through the talents and successes of Caleb, but not through me. How often do we hold up our heroes of the faith while we sit on the sidelines and watch? They are more educated. They have more experience. They know how to pray. They can speak without using notes. <laughs> they know all the right verses and where to find them. To be honest, whenever I preach, there's a part of me that feels a lot like that little girl trembling at the end of the diving board. <laughs> but I love the story of Ruth. It is so extraordinary because God uses totally unexpected, ordinary people to weave together his incredible redemption plan. And in order... For us to get a fuller understanding of all this amazing story, we need to try to take off our modern Western cultural lenses and attempt a glimpse into this ancient patriarchal culture, which is really totally foreign to us. This book of Ruth actually has a surprise beginning. I don't know if you caught it, but the opening introduces us to three men, and then it takes an unexpected dark twist. In five short verses, death totally wipes them out, leaving three grieving widows. So we think it's going to be about the three men, and then it's about the three widows. In this ancient culture, women only hold value in relationship to men. So now that their men are gone, these three should hold no interest to anyone at that time. The story really should be over. But unexpectedly, the spotlight suddenly shifts to an all-female cast. Not only that, but from here on out, the story is told from Naomi's point of view. It's her husband and sons, her daughter-in-laws, her losses, her people, and her God. This perspective was totally unheard of and unexpected. So let's back up a bit and take a deeper look at the context of these unusual characters. We know that this was a time of judges, which were very dark days in Israel's history. This is when God would raise up judges over and over again to rescue the Israelite people from their troubles, but they continued to choose to turn their backs on him. And at the start of the book, there was famine in Judea. We cannot even comprehend the devastation of famine. We see pictures, but we cannot enter into what that must have been like. It must have been total desperation that drove Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons away from their people, away to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. It is there in a strange land that Naomi had to bury her husband. And then after that, her two sons marry Moabite women. <laughs> the pagan Moab nation were descendants from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. 
definitely the shady side of Abraham's tree. (laughs) I would think these marriages would have caused Naomi quite a bit of concern. Also tucked away between these lines, we know that before the two sons died, there was barrenness, barrenness for 10 years, no mention of children. In this culture, the inability to give birth was always, always the woman's fault. It was her shame, her failure. There was no one to carry on the the family name. And when they buried both of Naomi's sons, she must have felt her life was ending too. As a widow, she had no place in society. She had no future, no income, no voice, no legal power and no hope. Have you ever been in in a position where you felt totally helpless? Where you felt you couldn't do anything for God or for others? I know I've had seasons in my life where I was home with toddlers and babies, where I've faced yet another health crisis, and I thought, there is no way God could use me to do anything important. <laughs> it seemed like everyone else had something to offer, to offer Jesus more than me. Growing up, <laughs> I can remember back when the story of Ruth was told in Sunday school, and I sort of got the impression that Naomi was just a bitter old complainer. <laughs> It seemed wrong for Naomi to shake her hand against God and basically call him her enemy. God has turned his hand against me. He has afflicted me. (laughs) But now that I have suffered more and I have witnessed it in others, I understand those agonized cries. I also recognize along with the leading scholars that there are parallels between Naomi and Job. The extent of their losses are almost mere images, as well as their bewilderment and wrestling with God. Job 6.4 says, The Almighty's arrows are in me, and my spirit drinks their poison, and God's terrors are arrayed against me. Have you ever wondered why stories of great suffering are in the Bible? Especially ones that ask the hard questions and sort of make God look bad because he doesn't intervene. (laughs) He doesn't come to the rescue and and miraculously make it go away, fix the problem, bring healing. We know he doesn't cause the tragedy, but he could not have allowed it to happen. (laughs) When we read closely, we often discover a God who doesn't explain himself. When God interacts with Job, he doesn't ever tell him about his earlier conversation with Satan. And he doesn't give Naomi any glimpses into his purposes. So the way my analytical brain works, I consistently like to question why. I think if I can understand the why of something, I can learn from the situation, make things better, avoid that problem in the future. Thinking I know the answer to why gives me confidence. After our oldest daughter was born, many of you know that John was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I actually grew in my faith as we experienced an amazing outpouring from our network of support. And John's cancer, even though it was hard, it did respond to chemo and radiation. And when he finally 
um, got through the treatment. We had a neighborhood celebration where we, it, we testified to God's goodness in our home. And I thought I sort of understood some of the why of that difficult time, that we could, we could trust God and testify to his goodness when times are hard. And then Sophia was diagnosed with kidney failure at age eight. And then she needed dialysis and a transplant by age nine. And several years later, John had a stroke, which required a long road of rehabilitation and a heart surgery. And by then, we have four kids. And for a period of time, I had to manage so many things on my own that I never had to do before. And just a few years ago, I had an MRI for a concussion, and they discovered a benign brain tumor. And I've had to have radiation and be monitored. I have migraines and deal with some things with fibromyalgia. I do not list all of these things to compare our sufferings because I know there are brothers and sisters here who have suffered much more than I. I just want you to know that I have cried multiple times to God, enough, enough, no more, I can't bear it. I am empty. I thought I learned my lesson from suffering, and I believe you could take it all away, but you don't. <laughs> Where is your goodness? We can feel that it's your, our Christian duty to look our best, to polish things up for God. <laughs> After all, Romans 8.28 says that we know that God works all things together for the good of the ones who love him. So just keep smiling and only answer those, only share those answers to prayer, right? <laughs> Maybe uh, if I reveal my questions, my pain and anger, it will cause others to doubt. We can fall into the trap of presenting an airbrushed version of ourselves in order to prove to the world that Christianity really works. But that's not what we see in the Bible. <laughs> I love, love, love this quote by Eugene Peterson. No literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of, Bible, uh, the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. On every page of the Bible, there is recognition that faith encounters trouble. We should certainly recognize that these past couple of years of being in a pandemic and now this in-between time between pastors is a troubling time in the life of the church. But scripture reminds us that our hope is not based on our circumstances and God does see and hear our troubles and our cries. God responded to Job in a stormy voice revealing his power in creation. But God's revelation to Naomi in his, of his presence was very different. It came through the firm embrace of her Moabite daughter-in-law. I am learning that God can use my suffering to open my eyes to see more of him. It's in these times that I am empty of myself. I am quiet before him. I strain my eyes for just a glimpse and I intensely listen for a sign that he is near. 
And Jesus and I have had some precious times together that I will never, never forget. Let's get back to our story of Ruth. The three widows are on the road to Bethlehem. And as you can see, it's a long road. (laughs) It's not a short journey. The book of Ruth is actually the first place in scripture where Bethlehem is mentioned. And Bethlehem is translated the house of bread. I love this image of abundance and feeding. Ancient listeners would know this as the birthplace of their shepherd, King David. And we Christian readers, of course, perk up because we know this is where Jesus, the Messiah, was born. Not far down the road, the women reach a pivotal spot where Naomi declares the truth of the death of her hopes. With the history of barrenness and a Moabite identity, there is absolutely no hope for any of them in Bethlehem. And Naomi really is a compassionate realist. She just begs for Ruth and Orpah to return to Moab. Orpah is sensible. She isn't selfish or wicked. She at first really refuses. She weeps, but she ultimately does what is expected. She does what Naomi tells her to do, and she goes home. Next, Naomi leverages her peer pressure at Ruth. Look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. Notice the emphasis, her people and her gods, the Moabite gods. But Ruth stands up with a radical commitment to the grave. (laughs) She appeals to Naomi's God, the God that Naomi had just blamed for all her suffering. So this is the point of impact. Naomi's cry The Lord's hand has gone out against me. And Ruth's declaration, your God will be my God. How incredibly ludicrous. What were the chances that Ruth would turn to God after seeing all the bad things that had happened to Naomi? It could be said that Ruth simply was embracing Naomi out of loyal love. We definitely see her love for Naomi beautifully displayed in the following chapters. But this is the spot where Ruth also fiercely embraces Naomi's God. This was the fork in the road where Ruth the Moabitess chose to become a true follower of Yahweh, leaving behind everything to follow him. So why did she do it? Perhaps while in the darkness of her pagan culture, which would have involved idol worship and child sacrifice, she heard the God stories of the Israelite people, and she witnessed the interactions of Naomi's family, and it drew her in. Perhaps in the darkness, even a little light makes all the difference. And here's another wonder. God chose to powerfully use Naomi even at a point when she had nothing good to say about him. When she even tried to turn Ruth away. (laughs) We can be encouraged that God can work through us too. Even when we are discouraged and questioning and wrestling with him, God prefers to work through us when we submit to him in all our weaknesses. 
2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. I love that. So many times I have had neighbors and friends who know some of our family's story come to me and say, I don't know how you do it. How could you ever get through something like this? I couldn't do it. And I usually reply, well, I don't know. I don't have the answer. <laughs> it's minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, breathing in and out and looking to Jesus who somehow carries my burdens with me. I could do nothing without him. Even in her pain, Naomi continues towards God's provision and his people in Bethlehem. And she still acknowledged his working and power in her life. Now, as far as Ruth knew, her future was grim. <laughs> she had a long life in ahead in Bethlehem as an immigrant foreigner living in poverty and insecurity. Yet she brashly clings to Naomi, even as she must have been grieving her own losses. She lost a husband, her own family, her own people. We see, also see her boldness revealed again in chapter 2 when hunger drives her out to glean in Boaz's fields in order to provide for Naomi and herself. Ruth asked to glean among the sheaves, which is highly unusual. That would be where the servants would work instead of the gleaners. And the gleaners were the poor who by law were allowed to glean among the edges of the field or pick up scraps after the harvesters and the servants would have done their work. So she goes to Boaz with an unusual request, and Boaz more than grants it. He is truly a remarkable and honorable man, and he is generous. And then later, um, she also makes a shocking decision. She follows Naomi's risky advice, which is a sign of Naomi's revived hope for the future, and brave, bravely creates a marriage proposal for Boaz under cover of night. This is unheard of. <laughs> oh, there's so much more here. Uh, we don't even have time to explore the depth of Boaz's noble character or the drama of this whole redemptive story. I suggest you spend some quality time reading and studying the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters, but it is incredibly rich in imagery. And I also highly recommend Finding God in the Margins, the book of Ruth by Carolyn Custis James. And I have truly gotten so much from my sermon from there. Um, one quote I love, God has used an isolated foreign woman with no status in this society she adopts to bring redemption to his people through her obedience, which at every point in the narrative carried great risk. So at the end of the book of Ruth, when over a decade of barrenness, she unexpectedly bore Boaz's son, we read that all the women of Bethlehem gathered and rejoiced praising with Naomi for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. 
What a testimony and shocking statement back then that must have been. A Gentile, an outsider woman, could be better than seven sons. All along, the people of Bethlehem have witnessed Naomi's story unfold from her arriving unrecognizable, empty in her grief, to the joyful announcement of a miracle baby. <laughs> the whole town, men and women, recognized God's provision and celebrated in his redemption. In this story, we also begin to get a picture of the kingdom of Christ, where the last will be first and the first will be last. We know as well that Ruth is honored in being named as one of the few Gentile women in the lineage of Christ, along with Tamar and Rahab, and you can read all about it in Matthew 1.5. Ruth and Naomi, poor ordinary widows, are part of God's big story because they chose to put their whole future in his hands. So today, as we together are on the diving board of life, what are some specific ways we can be encouraged by Ruth's story? I believe that God meets us in our painful places and calls us to be vulnerable with himself and with others. He welcomes our hard questions. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many examples of it in scripture. Stories like Job and Naomi. Also, when we are vulnerable with each other, it allows others to be real as well. And this is so important. Two, God works powerfully through ordinary people. Our church has an incredible history of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, sacrificially serving and giving in our city and our world. I wish I had time to list them all for you. But these deep roots give us stability and unity of purpose and identity. We can testify that God has used us to reach people with his love in the past. He is using us now and he will continue to work through us in the future. I just this week was so blessed to hear about First Free Methodist folks delivering hamburgers to those waiting in line at Operation Night Watch for shelter. I've heard about people putting together ministry meals and delivering them to families with health issues. I know about those who are leading Bible studies and, and small groups in their homes, and many of you who are faithfully offering prayer support. I've witnessed new people stepping out of their comfort zones to join the welcome team, to read scripture, to be a part of the tech crew up there, which is very, very important. <laughs> Um, we have new and returning folks who will be helping with our foster support group on Tuesday night. And I'm so excited to report that about eight of them are teenagers and SPU students, which is so wonderful. Um, there are so many others I could highlight. Also this week, I had a social worker come by to pick up things for a foster youth, and he said his caseload is so heavy and there's no way he could do the work he does without the resources and support of this church. So we are ordinary people. We are boldly choosing to be used by God, and that will continue to speak volumes about his love to our world. And lastly, God often provides for our needs in our faith community. 
In this story, Naomi was drawn back to community with God's people, and Ruth obediently listened and responded to Naomi's guidance in her life. Boaz provided for their physical needs, and God redeemed their family through him. Clearly, none of this could have happened in isolation. Each of these characters grew in their responses to God through relationship with each other. We need godly people in our lives to keep us on track, to steer us in the right direction, and to remind us of God's truth and grace that is at work in our lives. And I am so grateful for you that helps to do that for me. Will you pray with me now? Jesus, we thank you that you journey with us and you meet us at every crossroads of our lives. You are present in our painful, questioning places. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, we are amazed by your grace that chooses to use us to reflect your love. Empower us with your spirit to be bold in showing and telling others about you. Lord, we are grateful you give us your word and your people to guide us as we go. Give us your ear, eyes to see and ears to hear. In your name we pray, amen.